Friends, we are exploring the Kutas Sichas, volume 16, the Sicha number one of Shemois. The Rebbe introduces or teaches us a fascinating way of Torah study, which is called in Hebrew Aramaic Lishitase, which means that when we have two sages arguing and, and, and each one taking a different opinion, not just in one case, but in numerous cases in the Talmud, there's often a thread that you can find between all those opinions. This is something not really to try at home. You have to have a, the encyclopedic knowledge and depth of understanding of the Torah and of the Talmud and all these opinions to be able to you know, scan the entire Talmud and say, yes, all of these are consistent by this sage and all of these arguments are consistent by this sage. And the Rebbe does this um, many places. A famous example is Hillel and Shammai argue many times in the Talmud. And the Rebbe um, posits that their, their approaches to Torah is that Hillel talks about potential and Shammai talks about actual. And that's why famously Hillel says that on Hanukkah, uh, you start by lighting one candle and going up from there because you do actual, how many days we got. And Shammai does the opposite. You start from eight and you go down because we talk about how much potential we have left, which is a fascinating discussion in and of itself. What's, what's there to celebrate in life? Is it all about your potential? What you actually do? Is it the gifts that God gave you that get you places or what you do with them? You know, so it becomes an interesting subject. And this uh, can relate, and the Rebbe in other talks relates, and other essays, a famous essay relates this to many different debates between Hillel and Shammai. Is it v'koyach or v'poyel? Is it about potential or actual? So in this sicha, the Rebbe does this with Rav and Shmuel, which incidentally gives more meaning to the whole concept of machlekes, of debates. The Talmud is full of debates. And you wonder, like, why do we need to know? Give us the bottom line. You open up the Jewish book of laws, like Rambam, there's only a, the final word. It doesn't give you the opinions. So why do I have to know that one said this and one said that, and we, and, and they're always arguing? Can't they, like, get along? And, and the study of both opinions is considered study of Torah. You have to make birchas a Torah, the blessing on Torah study, even if you're studying the, you know, the, the minority opinion that does not get the halacha their way because each one is Torah. So often by realizing and by, by illustrating that the same sage's opinion throughout the Torah is consistent. He's making a point. He's not just trying to argue in that particular case. He's making a point of how we approach Torah study. It becomes much more meaningful. The fact that there's two opinions, there's two approaches, which become relevant legally and in Talmudic study, and also even in our personal service of Hashem, as we will see. So the Rebbe in this sicha, is talking about two sages, Rav and Shmuel, two Talmudic sages, who often argued about many different things. And the Rebbe will show us seven different cases. If we look at the Sikha itself and also in the footnotes, there's one more, a total of seven different cases where Rav and Shmuel argue or disagree, see things differently. And the Rebbe is going to find a consistent thread between all of these cases. So let's jump right into it. So first one is in today's Torah portion, which is why it's a Sikha of the portion of Shemos. We're in the left column. We're going to go down that list of the seven cases. So the first case, the text says there arose a new king in Egypt that not, did not know Joseph. And then he started to enslave the Jewish people, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly things turned bad. So we have a dispute between Rav and Shmuel. Rav says when it says it was a new king, it means it was a new king. Shmuel says, no, it wasn't necessarily a new king. Maybe it was the old king. But he had new decrees. He acted like he didn't know Joseph. He was evil. That's the two opinions. 
Next case. We have a, a verse in the portion of Ayeshev a couple of weeks ago. Joseph is being uh, attempted or teased by the wife of Potiphar. And she's trying day in, day out, day in, day out. And, uh, and to no avail. He's strong. Finally, one day, everyone is out of the house. And she stayed home. She decided she's sick. And the language is that it came to pass on that day. And the quote is, and he came to the house to do his work. And here we have a dispute again. Rav says he came to do his work, his regular work, whatever it was. But, but then he found out that she's home. And she tried to run after him, and then he ran away. Shmuel says, no, it doesn't mean that he came to do his work. It means he actually came to do his work with her, meaning he came into sin. Which is an interesting, on a side, it shows us the importance of morality and, and, and being careful with not setting ourselves up in a case of a test. And even Yosef, apparently at that point in his life at least, was capable of having a second thought about such a thing. So it shows, her. and he was being tempted by her every single day, day in, day out, for days on end. And Rashi explained she would change her clothing. She really, really uh, was after it. And he withstood the test, alone, in the middle of nowhere, away from everybody. And then he had a second thought, and still he withstood the test, which shows the fact that, the, that it was a tough battle and that he won the battle, which is obviously there for us to learn lessons and to be careful not to put ourselves in such situations, etc. And it's, it's, it's a, how, how is it that he won the test? Rashi points out that he saw the image of his father in the window. And the Hasidic masters explained to us that what's the significance of the image of his father beyond just a simple thing that he saw his father, so he was inspired, but also that Jacob, his father, what a splitting image of Adam, Adam Arishan, the first man created with God's hands, who was gorgeous. You can imagine how if God created a person, how beautiful that person would be. Jacob is in the same image of Adam. And by seeing his father's image, he's reminded of Adam, Adam Arishan, the first man, and he's reminded of the fact that one act in the wrong direction, can change the course of history, as it was in the case of the tree of knowledge. And similarly, Joseph teaches us that each individual should know that every mitzvah we do or every non-mitzvah that we do the opposite, we're not just one person and who cares? It doesn't really matter. It's a no big deal. No, it's a big deal. Each of us is in the image, is a continuation of, of Adam. And like Adam, ultimately, every single good deed or not good deed literally impacts the cosmos. But that was just parenthetical. Okay, so again, we have these two sides. Did he come to do his work or did he come to do his sin? Next, the first line of the Megillah, by Hibimei Achashverosh, it came to pass in the days of Achashverosh, the great king who reigned from Hodu to Kush, 127 lands or provinces. So here too, we have the two opinions. Rav says, Hodu and Kush were far away from each other. And the point of the verse is to say, how great his reign was, from Hodu all the way to Kush. Shmuel says, no, they were actually right next to each other. So what's the point in the verse? Because the verse continues and says that he reigned over 127 lands, which was the entire world at the time, the known world at the time. So if Hodu and Kush are far away from each other, then it's a redundancy. Hodu and Kush are saying he had everything. 127 lands is saying he had everything. Why would it be redundant? So Shmuel says the verse is saying something different. 
Hodo and Kush are right next to each other. They were his backyard. They were the place where he, he really had control. It was like his province, his, his control, his capital. By saying that he reigned from Hodo to Kush, over 127 lands, the verse is trying to teach us that he had the same control over the whole 127 lands, all of the world, so to speak, in the same way that he controlled Hodu and Kush. But actually, they were right next to each other. And you wonder, why is Shmuel arguing? Why can't he just accept Rob's opinion that there was a, a straightforward meaning? Next. We all know Nimrod who threw Abraham into the fiery furnace. He's mentioned in Torah two different names. First, in the portion of Noah when he's born, Torah says it was a man named Kush who gave birth to Nimrod. Mazel Tov. He's a kid, Nimrod. But then in the portion of Lachlacha, the following portion, when it speaks about the, the war of the four kings against the five kings, and uh, Abraham took the side of the five kings fighting against the four much mightier kings. The first of those four mighty kings, his name is Amraphel. So the Talmud explains that really Amraphel is Nimrod. Everyone agrees Amraphel is really Nimrod. He was the first, he was the mightiest king of the time. But the question is, why does he have two names? So Rav and Shmuel disagree. Rav says his real name was Nimrod, as it says in the portion of Noah when he was born. And Raphael is, is hinting to the fact that what, that he, it's, it's an acronym, so to speak, Omar Vehipil, Amraphel, Omar Vehipil, that he commanded that Abraham be cast into the furnace. Whereas Shmuel says the opposite. His real name was Amraphel. And Nimrod is a hint or an acronym to the concept of rebelliousness because the word Nimrod has in it the root of the word Merida, Marad, to rebel. He rebelled against God. Next, we have in the portion of Chayisara, Abraham, his wife passes away and he needs to find her a burial place and he goes to the leadership there, Mamre, people of Chais, and he says, I want to get this cave and it's called Ba'ara the cave of the devil. And he's asking for it, I want to buy it, I want to have it, it's very special. So here too, we have the two opinions. What does it mean, the cave of the devil? Why is it called the cave of the devil? What kind of name is that? So Rob says, it's called the cave of the devil because it housed couples. There were, there were couples buried there. Who are the couples that were buried there? Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah. It housed four couples. It's the cave of couples. It's the coupled cave. Shmuel says, it's called the cave of the devil because it was a two-tiered cave which is quite unusual. Usually a cave is a cave. This was a, a, a two-level cave, uh, which incidentally uh, is midrashically, allegorically explained that uh, life, uh, the, the first burial that's recorded in Torah, speaks of a two-tiered cave to indicate that life has two levels. There's this life and there's the hereafter, et cetera, et cetera. Bottom line is that Shmuel says, why is it called double cave? Because it's a double cave, one level and another level. Next portion of Bayera. The language in the Torah is Abraham planted an Eshel. We don't know what Eshel is. He planted something called an Eshel in Be'er Sheba. And the verse continues that he proclaimed the name of God uh, thereby. And the question is, what, what, what did he plant? So Rav says he planted an orchard. Shmuel says it doesn't really mean an orchard. It was a hospitality center. The Hebrew word Eishel is an acronym for Achilosh Alina, eating and drinking and uh, sleeping over. And that's what he really did. And then finally, the seventh 
uh, debate, which is not in the Sikh itself, but it's in the footnotes. There is a biblical verse in Tanakh which says, This is uh, this is the prophet is speaking after the destruction of the first temple. The Jews are beaten down. They lost the temple of Solomon, this great prophetic temple, miraculous temple. The prophet says, fear not, there will be a second temple. And not only that, but the second one will be greater than the first. Gadol, greater, bigger. So here too, there's a debate. What does it mean greater? Rav says it was greater because it was taller. First temple was only 30 cubits high in its high point. The second temple was 130 cubits high or 100 cubits high. I'm not, I'm not remembering now. Much bigger. So it was a higher structure. And Shmuel says when it says greater, it means that it had more longevity. It lasted longer. The first temple stood for 410 years. The second temple stood for 420 years. The Rebbe analyzes, and the Rebbe wants to say that all these seven are consistent. And uh, the fact that they're arguing is one thread throughout. Says the Rebbe, and we're looking now at this line. Um, says the Rebbe, the way it's explained in the Talmud, Rebbe wants to say, Rav and Shmuel take two approaches in studying texts. When you want to understand the straightforward meaning of the text, and this is beyond the fact that there's, there are four levels of Torah interpretation and there are 70 levels of Torah interpretation, but in terms of the straightforward meaning of text, still there can be two ways to look at it. Rav says, look at the literal words. Be exacting about it. What does it say? And Shmuel says, sometimes the literal words can be confusing. You have to see context. You have to see not just the actual word, but the whole verse, the whole paragraph, to know what the straightforward meaning of the words are. And this is, says the Rebbe, a general theme of Rav and Shmuel, and you'll see it throughout this entire thread. So let's go right through it. A new king arose. According to Rav, it's very simple. It says a new king. It means a new king. No questions asked. Shmuel says, wait a minute. What's the context? What is, the, what is the point the Torah is trying to make? Do I need to know there was a new king? We're talking about a context bringing out that there was cruelty, that suddenly they became cruel and against the Jewish people. The language is a new king arose who did not know Joseph. How could he not know Joseph? Did he not read his history? It was just one generation prior. Joseph reigned in Egypt for, for, for 70 years, from the age of 30 to the age of... Uh, 110. For 80 years, he reigned in Egypt and he brought blessing for Egypt. And suddenly, 10, 20 years later, whatever it was, a short time later, they did not know of Joseph. How is that possible? So the context here is not that they did not know Joseph and necessarily was a new king. The context is that they decided they don't want to know Joseph and they're going to act cruel and, and new with new decrees, and therefore the emphasis in the new king, the emphasis, the new decrees, may very well have been the same king. So again, Rob is being literal. It says what it means. It means what it says. A new king arose, a new king. No questions asked. Shmuel says, why would the Torah be telling us that? Look at the purpose of the context of the whole discussion. It's trying to tell us how evil the Pharaoh was and the fact that he had suddenly this change of heart. And suddenly he may believe he didn't know. It's about the new decrees, not about a new king. Next. Joseph came in to do his work. So Rav again is literal. That's what it says. Came to do his work, kept doing his work. 
Why read further than that? Shmuel says, why do I have to know why he came to the house? Speak context. I need to know that he came to the house. Maybe he was in the house. Maybe he was he slept late. I mean, why do I need to know? And read the rest of the verse. He came to the house to do his work, and there was no one home. So the Torah is trying to tell us something. Aha, he came to the house to do his work. What kind of work? Work that requires that no one should be home. So the context is referring, is leading, pointing to the fact in a very modest way that the point is that he really actually came to sin. Again, Shmuel, look in the context. So there's a beautiful thread. Next, hold it to Kush. So this we covered a little bit the first go-round. Rav says it's two ends of the world, because that's what it says. It's trying to show whenever it says from one until the other, when the word until ab means distance. We'll see how big it is. Shmuel says, but look at the whole verse, context. If that's the case, it's repetitious. All the way from Hodu, all the way to Kush. 127 lines, it's repetitious. Both speaking to the grandeur to, of, of the physical size of his kingdom. Whereas Shmuel says, no, no, no. If they're both together, and as I explained earlier, that it's trying to point out that he had such a grip on his entire kingdom, all 127 lands, with the same grip that he had even on the, on the two lands that were right next to each other, then it shows a qualitative control. And now we have a contextual point that's being made. It's not redundant. Next, Nimrod versus Amrafa. So Rob again translates the words straightforward. The first time Nimrod is mentioned is when he's born. Text says, Kush gave birth to Nimrod. Says Rob, that's what it means. That's his name. Like many other names in Torah, Mr. Shalach, Lamach, you know, the, the name, a name is a name. The Torah doesn't discuss why the name was given. It was given. So the Torah says Nimrod was his name. Nimrod was his name. When we come to the next Torah portion in Lech Lecha, and suddenly we find out that he has another name. Now we have to explore what that name was about. Then we say, well, it hints to something. And that's, in Rav's approach, the straightforward way to go. Because the text simply says that this was his name at birth. Why read for it? Shmuel says, wait a minute. Take a look at the first time his name is mentioned at birth in the portion of Noah. The language is, there's a whole discussion about it, two or three verses. It says that Cush gave birth to Nimrod, but it doesn't stop there. It says he began to be a strong man in the land. I'm saying, I'm quoting. Gibor, he became a strong man in the land. And he became a famous mighty hunter warrior. To the extent that people, it would be said by people. Aha, this guy is so strong. He's like Nimrod, who's a mighty warrior and hunter, unquote. So the Torah is giving context to the name Nimrod saying he's strong, he's mighty. The Torah is trying to hint to something. Says Shmuel, what's the point of this? The context is that Nimrod carries in itself a message of rebelliousness. And Shmuel, therefore, conversely, when he comes to the next Torah portion, he just introduces Amrapha without context. Amrapha is his name. Straightforward. Next. Double K. So you might say, um, that Shmuel seems more, more straightforward. Double cave means a double cave, two stories. However, if you're literal, if you're true to the literal words, it doesn't say it's a double cave, it says it's a cave of the double. Because if it's a double cave, it should be called like caves, two caves, double. Ma'arat is singular. Ma'arat, it's a cave. And the adjective that it's a double cave. It's not 
caves. It's not twin caves, but it's, if you're being literal, it's the cave that some, for some reason, called the double cave. Says Rab, if you're being literal, then it's only one cave. Why is it called a double cave? Aha, because there was a couples there. It had place, or maybe this name is being given, uh, Torah is giving the name for the future, so that eventually there were four couples there. Or even then, there were, there, there were four spots for couples. Bottom line, it's, a, it's one cave, but it's a cave that's doubled, that has the potential to house caves, to house couples. Most of it's all good and fine, you're being very literal. But why do I got to know about this? If Abraham is, the context here is Abraham is negotiating. He's begging them. He said, my wife just died. I love her. She's very special. I got to get her the right, appropriate burial site that she deserves. Why would he argue for a cave that has room for, for, for eight graves, for four couples? How is that an argument in his negotiation that he really needs his cave? Because it's my dad's so one. He needs a cave that has, that has eight spots. How's that an argument? But if he says, I want that cave, and you know why? Because it's, it's a double cave. It has two stories. It's unique. It's special. It's, it's, it, 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 it's a special significance and honor as befitting this special woman. That makes sense. So again, in context, it fits better. Next, Abraham planted an Aishel. So here Shmuel says, what do you mean? So in the literal sense, let's start with Rob again. In a literal, literal sense, when the minute you say planted, you're referring to a tree, an orchard, something. So Aishel must be a reference to some kind of tree. In fact, if you Google it, Wikipedia will tell you that it's a certain type of tree. Because, but from the Torah's perspective, from the biblical verse, it says he planted an Aishel. So an Aishel has to be plantable. It's an orchard. Shmuel says, that's really nice. But what's the context? What does it say in the second half of the verse? He planted an Aishel. And he proclaimed the name of God, like thereby. How is planting an orchard to help you proclaim the name of God? Ha! Facial really is an allusion to the acronym of Achilles Tiolino. Eating and drinking and, uh, and hospitality sleeping over. It's a hospitality center, a Chabad house. You came, they gave you meat and wine, and you spent some time there, and you were treated royally, and then you had opportunities to discuss monotheism, then it makes sense what the verse is saying. He planted this Aishel, this hospitality center, and he used it to proclaim God's name because people would spend time there. If he planted an orchard, how long are people going to hang out? They're going to come, they'll do some apple picking and the leaf. He's not hardly going to have a chance to really impress upon them the message of monotheism. But if it's a hospitality center and he can spoil them and keep them there for a couple of days and give them all kinds of goodies, like a whole retreat, then he has an opportunity to, uh, to be impactful. So therefore, in context, it makes more sense, even though on the literal sense, you don't plant a building, even though it's pointed out by Rashi that uh, I believe that there's a biblical verse elsewhere that sometimes pitching your tent can be called planting as a borrowed term. Nevertheless, on the literal sense, yes, planting means a tree and therefore an orchard is more literal. That's why Rob takes that position. But Shmuel says, we're talking about context. The message is that he set up a hospitality center to proclaim God's name. Finally, the last one, the second temple will be greater than the first. Reminds me of a story that in the city of Dvinsk, in Latvia, it was a big Torah city, 100 years ago, what have you. There were two rabbonim, 
The Hasidic Rav was the Rabbi Charber genius, Rabbi Yosef Rosen. And the Litvish Rav was the Arsameach, I believe, also noted scholar and author. And there was often debates, who's greater? Which one is bigger? And they would argue in Yiddish, where is Gnesa? Which Rav is bigger? People took different sides. This one is brilliant, this one is this. There was a simple Jew in the synagogue hearing this discussion, and he says, I don't understand. What are you guys talking about? Everyone knows that, uh, that the Ersameach uh, is, is four inches taller than the Rugged Shabbat. How could you even discuss who's bigger? He's much bigger. And they looked at him and he started to laugh. When you talk about a Rav, and they talk about in terms of who's bigger, you don't mean physical stature. You mean who's more wise and what have you. So he missed the whole point. Just on the side. So when it says that the second temple will be greater, Hebrew, Gadol, what does it mean to be a bigger temple? So Rav is again being literal. It's bigger. It says bigger. It means bigger. It was taller in stature. Shmuel says that's bigger. The context of the verse is Gadol says that the glory of Hashem that will be come out through this temple will be greater. Where do you see the more glory of Hashem? That it lasts longer. Shows longevity that the Shekhinah is here for a long period of time. That's bigger. Physical stature, that doesn't make it bigger. And here the Rebbe already showed us in a brilliant fashion a thread through all seven cases and Rav and Shmuel each respectively taking their position, whether you look at the literal meaning of the word or you look at the context. But then the Rebbe adds a beautiful addition to the Sikha. The Rebbe says, Rashi, a commentary comes a thousand years after the Talmud as an overlay to the Talmud. Rashi, while Rashi quotes almost all of these uh, debates, both sides of them, not all, but almost, but only in four cases does he mention the names of the sages Rav and Shmuel. And we know the principle Rashi doesn't like to mention names of sages, who take their positions, because Rashi is trying to keep things simple and short for the student. Whenever Rashi does mention a name of a sage, it's to teach us something for the Talmud Mamullah, for the seasoned student who's going to read into it deeper. So while Rashi mentions both sides of almost all of these seven arguments, not all, but almost, only in four cases does he actually list the names of the sages that we're discussing, Rav and Shmuel. Which four cases, for easy reference on your screen, the four cases that are in bold. So to make it easy, I bolded Rashi. And I further bolded the four cases that Rashi chooses to mention the names of the sages to the exclusion of the other three. And the Rebbe says, what's Rashi telling us? Rashi's teaching us something here. And the Rebbe brilliantly comes along and says that Rashi is teaching us I'm assuming in addition to the aforementioned, that there's another perhaps deeper thread going through here in the difference of the thinking between Rav and Shmuel and their consistency in this deeper level of approach is visible only in these four cases. Hence Rashi only mentions it in those cases. And that is by preface, we know that Rav was an expert in laws of prohibition. Is this kosher or not kosher? Can you do this on Shabbos or not? Is this muktzah or not? He was an expert. Referred to as isura, prohibition. 
generally laws between man and God. Shmuel is the expert in in monetary laws, generally speaking, social laws between man and his fellow. It's known, therefore, that when they would disagree, when all things were equal, they would follow Rav's ruling in prohibition, because he was the expert, and follow Shmuel's ruling when it came to monetary laws, because he was the expert. Apparently, he was a very successful businessman, and he understood business quite well, and that was his area of expertise. So while they were both great in all areas of power, but when it came down to it, and you know, it was uh, what have you, each one was considered expert in their particular field. Says the Rebbe, read into it. Rav is an expert, and he's the final word when it comes to Isurim, prohibition, which means he sees Judaism primarily as a relationship between man and God. Conversely, Shmuel, he's the expert in monetary laws, and that's where his passion lies, so to speak, in his expertise. And you might say that his way of looking at Judaism, that it's primarily a relationship between man and his fellow. Which, which, by the way, adds a new level of relevance to us in our own service of Hashem. What is Judaism? Is it primarily between us and God? Judaism wants us to be spiritual and holy. Or is it primarily between us and our fellow that Judaism wants us to be a mensch, decent human beings? The truth is it's both. The Ten Commandments have two tablets. Right? God could have put it all on one tablet. No, there's two tablets. One is between man and God, and one is between man and his fellow. And they're both equal, five and five, to point out that what? That you can't pick and choose? That you can't make a Judaism that's just about social action? That's not Judaism. We're not here just to be nice people. We're here to serve Hashem. And that's the first tablet, first and foremost. It's about a relationship to Hashem. Conversely, if someone says, yeah, I'm serving Hashem, I'm very pious and when it comes to Shabbos and Kashras, but I can cheat my friend, mm -mm. comes along a second tablet and says, no. That spirituality and relationship with God needs to express itself in being a good person between man and his fellow. And if, if in the relationship with your fellow, you're not honest, you're not decent, you're not kind and cordial, what have you, or charitable, it's an indication perhaps that your relationship to God is lacking. And that's why we have the two tablets. And therefore, this is not explicit in the Sikha, but it's implicit. That Rav and Shmuel, you might say many sages throughout history, going back all the way to Moshe and Aaron, the fact that there were two leaders throughout all the generations, as Rambam points out in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, often you can find that one leans more to one side and one more to the other. But in the context of this Sikha, Rav and Shmuel, these two great pillars of Torah, are teaching us that we have these two areas of Judaism. Both are important. And therefore, each one of the leaders of the, the generation take a position of emphasis on one or the other because they're both important. I saw a beautiful vart, a beautiful saying. I'm not sure the source of it. It's known that there's two opinions of which way the mezuzah should stand. And it's a debate between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Rashi says the mezuzah should be flat. Rabbeinu Tam says that the mezuzah should be straight, which is the way some Sephardic customs do it. Uh, our custom, in fact, is that we put it on an angle. Apparently, there's no such opinion. The opinions are either flat or straight. And the angle is a compromise. So there's a discussion, and again, I'm not sure the source of this, that, um, that the two opinions are, what is the emphasis of Judaism? Is it straight, which means we're here, the main emphasis, you put a mezuzah on your doorpost to remind you that the purpose of your home is what? To connect to God, spirituality. And that's the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam, who is more of a mystic. 
He sees Judaism from a mystical, spiritual perspective. Or Rashi, who's pshat, who's more literal, and he says, no, 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 just be a good person. Don't be, be honest, be nice, be kind. And therefore, it's flat, meaning to say it's here to make the world better between people. <laughs> Obviously, they both have both approaches. But what is the primary purpose, so to speak? Is it to make the world a good place? Or is it to make the world connected to Hashem and make it a holy place? And by putting the mezuzah on an angle, what we're essentially saying is that it's both, just like the two tablets. We need to connect the world to Hashem and thereby make make this world a holy place. And by extension, it will, of course, become a good, decent place. It will be world peace. But that world peace will be an outgrowth and direct natural outgrowth of what? Of the fact that it's infused with godliness, with Kedusha, with Elikos, with holiness. And therefore becomes really both. And this, says the Rebbe, is a deeper way of looking at Rav and Shmuel. By the way, it's known in the Talmud that Rav is more the expert in the laws of prohibition, Shmuel and monetary. Which is why the halacha will come down on their side, respectively, in these issues, says the Rebbe. Because Rav, therefore, sees Judaism, perhaps, the main focus as between man and God, and Shmuel between man and his fellow. Therefore, says the Rebbe, this thread, this additional overlaid thread, can be seen in the four cases that are bolded, the four cases that Rashi quotes their names in. Let's go down the list. A new king arose. Was it an actual new king, or was it the same king who enacted new decrees? So we're trying to bring out in the text the cruelty of the king. When is he more cruel? If he's a new king, or if he's the same old king who knew Joseph and now turned on him? Depends how you look at it. If you're looking at it from a perspective of between, between man and God, in terms of spiritual morality, so to speak. So if he's the same king, he has an excuse. Because he can say, you're complaining that I'm mistreating my subjects? Heaven brought them to me. Providence made them fall in my lap. Their, their, their forefather, Jacob, came to me. I didn't go to him. He came to me. He needed a place to go, and I saved him, and I, I took care of him. He bowed to me. He blessed me, which means that providence brought them to my lap. They're meant to be mine. So he has an excuse for his cruelty between man and God. However, if it's a new king, he doesn't have that excuse. And therefore, Rav says it was an actual new king because this emphasizes, underscores even more so the cruelty of this king. If Rav's main emphasis between man and God, he, what does it mean cruelty in Rav's book? You don't believe in God. It's a new king. He doesn't even have the excuse to say that heaven brought them to me. So what's his right to mistreat them? just because he's a sinner. So it emphasizes the sin more in the column of between man and God. Shmuel says, no, real cruelty is between man and his fellow. If you're not so religious, doesn't mean you're cruel. But if you're mean to someone who did you good, who was nice to you, you're, you're, you're rotten to the core. And therefore, Shmuel, since to him, that's real cruelty. The emphasis, it was the same king. And he, after everything Joseph did for him, he suddenly turned his back. This is really cruel. And therefore, Shmuel says, no, it was the same king who changed his stripes suddenly overnight. And that makes him much more cruel because it makes him cruel on a social level. 
Next, Joseph came in to do his work. Here, the Rebbe says that we're trying to, the text is trying to bring out the righteousness of Joseph. And again, what is the definition of righteousness? If righteousness is primarily spiritual righteousness, a relationship to God, so if he came to do his work, if he came to do a sin, then he's hardly righteous. However, Shmuel says that righteousness is primarily social. And therefore, he came to do his a sin, but at least he chose a day when no one was around. So it wouldn't impact his work as much. It wouldn't impact other people as much. And therefore, on a social level, it emphasizes that at least even in his weakest moment, he was still maintaining some level of decency on a human level. And he made sure at least that his act shouldn't impact the whole, the, the, the whole kingdom, the whole uh, setup of Potiphar's house. He waited for a quiet time, at least, to keep things discreet. Next, Abraham planted an Aishel. So Shmuel says it an actual hospitality center, because on a human level, on a social level, people are not looking for apples. Don't give me orchards. Give me a place to sleep. Give me a nice meal. Thank you very much. Whereas Rob says, not just that he gave us up to eat, he planted an orchard, he made the food himself, he planted it. This is much more of a partnership with God that he did. He didn't just uh, you know, order in. He created the food, he planted it, and, and therefore it shows him developing God's world, and it's much more of a spiritual relationship. And then finally, the second temple will be greater than the first. The Rebbe says this in the footnote, that if, was it greater in height or in longevity? So if you hold that, the approach is all about man and God. So when you're speaking of the temple being a great place, if it's a larger physical structure, that means there was more shechina, more lukos, more divine revelation in the world, because that divine revelation, which is what the temple is all about, wasn't only a structure of 30 cubits, it was a structure of 100 cubits. So there was much more divine revelation in the physical world. That's if Rob's approach, that it's all about the divine. Shmuel's approach is that it's, it's not how much divine revelation, but how much that impacts the human being, because that's Shmuel's approach between man and his fellow. And therefore, he says, it stood longer. If it stood an extra 10 years, mankind, the Jewish people, had more benefit from that revelation. And that, to him, is what's more important. Again, friends, think about this and take a look at this chart. This is brilliant of how the Rebbe takes these simple, seemingly unrelated debates between Rav and Shmuel and gives them not one but two threads of consistent flow in their approaches, which is brilliant and also lends insight in how we see the world um, and how we see Torah. Firstly, do we see Torah literally or do we see Torah contextually? And the answer is both. It has to have a literal meaning. At the same time, it has to make sense in context. And then secondarily, do we see Torah and our relationship to Hashem primarily to man and God or man and his fellow? Of course, the answer is both. And we're seeing it in these two great sages. The Rebbe concludes with a very powerful lesson. I must tell you that you have to read it a couple of times to realize 
the centrality of this lesson. Because it looks so simple when you read it once, like many things in Torah, and especially in the Rebbe Sichas, you read it, but then you reread it and reread it, and you realize that this is fundamental and extremely relevant. And that is, it's mostly focused on the actual uh, Torah verse of this week's Torah portion. For this lesson, let's forget everything else we learned. Zero in on the verse in this week's portion where it says a new king arose on Egypt. And we have two ways to look at this king. He's either an actual new king or we enacted new decrees. And the Torah is telling us that this is cruelty. Either way, it's cruelty, it's Pharaoh. And uh, to think of it in modern context, so to speak, that there is throughout history, there are pharaohs who want to take our firstborn and throw them into the Nile, which means they want to embrace us into the culture of the time and uh, drown us, so to speak. It doesn't have to mean drown us in the culture. And of course, we have the Jewish midwives who save the Jewish people, not only physically, but spiritually, as the Rebbe explains in other sikhs. So the Rebbe is teaching us a beautiful thing here. That not only if it's a new king should we worry, but even if it's the same old king should we worry. The way I understand this, what the Rebbe is saying is, sometimes, you know, we, we have good times, and then we have a new king came along and he's terrible. As often the Jewish people had throughout history. You know, they had a benevolent king for a short period of time, and then now oh, there's a new king, and he's a Russian, he's terrible. And there were pogroms, and the son, all kinds of decrees. But then there is an instance which is much more camouflaged, which I think is the Rebbe's main emphasis, and that is something that's very relevant to America. It's a Malchus Shalchesed, it's a kind country, kind a kingdom. And we, by and large, we don't have government decrees against Jews. It's wonderful. And the Jews become comfortable. It's a Pharaoh that they're familiar with. It's kindness, and the Rebbe would, in fact, praise America, et cetera, et cetera, and call it as such a kingdom of kindness. But still, we still have to be where it could be the same America. It's kind and it's comfortable, but there come new decrees. What this really means is the areas of culture that can swallow up the Jewish people. Not necessarily literal decrees, but areas of culture modernity that if the Jews are not careful, they'll, they'll swallow them, they'll be lost in it. The fact that the comforts of America are prone, uh, uh, allow us to be embraced. And suddenly we could lose sight of the importance of Shabbos and Kashrus and, and et cetera, and fall into the trap of modernity and not realize that we have to hold fast to who we are as a people. Whereas in the old country, when we're constantly threatened, so we, we, we stood our ground, we stayed separate. Shabbos was Shabbos, Kashrus was Kashrus etc., etc., because we were being threatened from the outside. There was no question that this is an enemy. But when we come to modernity and we're embraced, and we have a comfortable Pharaoh, who gives us the fat of the land, like the Pharaoh gave the Jewish people in the time of Joseph and his brothers, the land of Goshen was the best of the best. And in that comfortable place, we're suddenly told that, you know, it's not so important, not necessarily told by as a decree, but told by the culture. It's not so important to be different. It's not so important to have your own values. 
and we can fall prey to this and fall into this trap because it's the same Pharaoh. It's a comfortable Pharaoh. It's a familiar culture, reality, which is generally good to Jews. But if we're not careful, we can be throwing our children into the Nile of, uh, of, of things that are not uh, 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 in line with Torah values. And that, it says the rabbi, we need to be very, very careful. If you think about it, you realize this is such a fundamental and relevant message that in the time of comforts, in the time of plenty, which is a great blessing, and the rabbi would often say, that this is how it should be, that even in exile days, in the last days of exile, we have comforts and we have freedom, and that's wonderful. But we need to watch out that it has a pitfall. That familiar Pharaoh presents new opportunities because of the freedoms, and we need to be very, very careful, stand on guard to maintain our Jewish identity and to do what the midwives did, which was feed the children material and spiritual nourishment to make sure that our children really are steeped in Torah values.